Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 54. I do have the passage for you on the insert in your bulletin, all ten verses. The middle section of the book of Isaiah, chapter 40 to chapter 55, is called usually the Song of the Servant. And there's a development over four different sections in this middle section of Isaiah, giving us a picture of the Messiah, the righteous servant of Jehovah. And we are in the last two chapters of that section. The culmination we have seen in chapter 53 of the finished work of the Messiah to come from their perspective, the original audience's perspective. Chapter 54 and 55, it's the effect of what redemption has purchased for us. It tells us what application comes, what the people of God can know and be empowered by because of the work of the servant in chapter 53. You can't understand chapter 54 and 55 without getting 53. Now that's not always the case in prophecies. Remember how it was written. Isaiah is preaching for 50 years. The Spirit of the Lord is upon him for these 50 years, speaking at a particular time when the northern kingdom falls, the southern kingdom is there under the threat of Assyria, eventually under the threat of Babylon. And Isaiah's ministering the whole time, and he's preaching. It's not just once. Over and over he's giving this message. This message became associated with him in his long-time, long-standing ministry. Towards the end of his life, it's believed, at least this is what most scholars think happened with these prophecies, His prophecies were then written out and put in the form we have. And there is a cohesiveness about the way the prophet authorizes his message to be put forth, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we would expect that chapter 52 and 53, the last servant song, would be the basis for whatever comes next. And that's what we have in chapter 54 and 55. The first 10 verses we'll begin with this morning. Please follow as I read. Remember, this is the God-breathed word. This is inerrant. We can trust it completely, um, and it is authoritative for our lives, and it's sufficient. So hear God's word with anticipation as I now read, starting at verse 1 of chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, said the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed, be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love 
I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, please send your Holy Spirit to do the work of illumination so that we might understand and apply your holy word. We praise you for the redemption purchased by Christ. We thank you, O Lord Jesus, for your finished work on the cross. We also give you praise for the ongoing work of restoration, renewal, and expansion that you're doing in and through us. We desire, O Lord, for your name to be given the glory it is due. Give us a holy boldness to sing for joy and to spread the message of your gospel, knowing that you are not just with us, you also uphold us and empower us. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now you know by now that I often mention how ancient this prophecy is. It's significant. It should bolster your faith in the word. 700 years, this is written before the time of Christ. To do sound Bible interpretation and to understand it, the reader must always ask the question, in what context was this word of God initially given? That is important. Often Christians will read the Old Testament and they're confused as to how they should interpret it. They'll read phrases that, that are praiseworthy and you'll, it'll, it'll excite you, but then it'll say other, something else about a promise to you and you don't know, is that to me or is that to them? What does it mean? Great questions. You should always ask them. And I want to set that uh, backdrop for you a bit as we enter these two chapters so we understand. How does an ancient letter to the Israelites relate to Christians like us living today? Now remember first and foremost what the Bible is. It's the expression of or the story of what God is doing by way of redeeming a people for himself. It's the history of that, but it's more than that. Laden in the history is a revelation of who God is, the message that we must believe to be right with God, the finished work of Christ on display, forecasted into the future, at least from the perspective of the readers of Isaiah, but looked back upon even by some of the New Testament authors who live within uh, 50 years of Jesus' resurrection. So it's all a matter of the angle, but it's the same central message, the redemption of God provided by Messiah. So the people in Isaiah's day, as they hear this prophecy, they're looking ahead to the perfect faithful servant of Jehovah who will finish the work of redemption, will be seated at the right hand of the Father and intercede. They're looking forward to that. They believe upon that Messiah, the promised Messiah. For salvation, they must have faith in that Messiah looking forward. Now, remember their situation, though. They're under discipline. They're coming under the discipline of God through Babylon. He's giving them this word of promise to help uphold them through that time of discipline because he's going to do something magnificent as he restores his people, as he grows his people. His people are only minuscule compared to what they will become. They look forward to this. 
We, on the other hand, know of the finished work of Christ. We have it on display in his word. We're sure of it. So we look back in faith upon Messiah for his finished work, and we also see how God has brought about restoration of his people through the expansion of his people here seated. It's seated elsewhere in other churches and other places, those places that call upon the name of Christ. Because who are the true sons and daughters of Abraham? Those who trust in Christ. It was always, always the intention of God through the Abrahamic covenant to spread it beyond just an, ethnic, an ethnicity or a nation. It was never meant to be contained there. In fact, that wasn't even sure proof anything. You could be part of that nation and not really right with God. You had to trust in the Messiah. But then when Christ comes, the doors blow open, if you will, to the nations so that this message in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant will be a blessing to the nations. So God's people, his restored people, renewed people, and ultimately the people who would be in glory, reigning with him, are all those who call upon the name of Christ. It's a picture of what he's doing even now. We're part of this ongoing work of God's restoration for his name on this earth and through his people. So we see portions of this text today speaking specifically to the Israelites' situation. But we also see the wider promises that you and I experience through Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, look at the context and see how it fits in that plan of God's redemption and where we fit in that timeline, you might say, and bask in it. This is a great time to be alive, by the way. I know sometimes we can get down about the times in which we live. But we have this completed revelation of God, his spirit working as actively as it ever has. And we can understand what he's doing. And as a result of what Isaiah 53 told us, what we know is fulfilled, we can go forth and we can sing. That's what he tells us. That's 54, the beginning of 54, notice how it starts? Sing. Because of 53, sing. And then also, by the way, don't hold back, enlarge. And you know what else? Fear not. Those are the opening verses of 54. It makes good sense, right? I mean, what else would you say after acknowledging the finished work of Christ? We could sing for joy. Praise God for this. We're no longer abandoned. We're no longer desolate. We're no longer barren, as it says, as it states. That's true of, of all God's people now. And yet we can be bold and enlarging, and we can be without fear in so doing. With that, let's look at the passage, because what we'll see is God's character on display. His character is the basis for both our redemption and also the restoration of his name through his people. Sing, enlarge your tent, fear not. Verse 1 says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So he's talking about the people of God now, who up till that point were not being fruitful. They were not serving the purpose that God called them to be. They were supposed to be God's faithful mouthpiece, his faithful servants, The nation, the people of God, were supposed to display the glory of God in the midst of the people, in the midst of the nations. And they weren't doing this. They were, in this sense, barren. They were without children. They were not perpetuating faith in God. It says in the second portion of verse 1, For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. So, as a result of the coming Messiah's finished work in the chapter preceding, He tells his people, you can sing now. Uh, Your barrenness is coming to an end. And eventually, even though you feel like the little ones, you feel like the ones who are the minority, uh, not nearly as many as the rest of the people on earth, those people will be outnumbered by you eventually in my so doing, because I will bring this fruit. They were not fruitful, but they will become fruitful. 
They were childless, spiritually speaking, but then would have children. Remember what the servant is told in chapter 53, that you will have the many will come because of you. He could see the fruitfulness of the ministry he was accomplishing. And he tells this barren nation to sing. It would be cruel to tell a barren woman to sing without providing for the only thing that would make her truly joyful, children. And that's exactly what he promises his people at this time. Look at verse 2. Not only does he promise fruitfulness where there was barrenness, he wants them to be bold about their expectations for God's expansion, his restoration, his renewal, his expansion, what he will do. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now this is a picture uh, the Israelites would have understood and people in antiquity, the ancient Near East especially, uh, understood these kinds of dwelling places. It was common for them to have tents. Um, They were heavy duty tents and they were adjustable. I mean they could make them as long or as wide as they needed to based on the space they had. And this is saying you've been hemmed in. Um, They're getting squeezed out by the nations. Assyria took a bunch of their land to the north. Now Babylon was taking it. It seemed like they had less and less space of their so-called promised land. But he's saying, what I'm going to do through you, on the basis of the work of my perfect servant, I am going to have my people expand. And he's saying, be bold about this promise that God has given. Enlarge the place of your tent. Uh, Don't hold back. Stretch it out completely. In fact, he says almost exactly that, verse 3. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and 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 will people the desolate cities. So God doesn't want the people of God, in light of the work of the Savior for us, to ever hold back in seeking the expansion of his name everywhere. And that's the purpose of expansion. It's not for our own prosperity or for some kind of external kingdom building. It's the message of the work of the Redeemer so that people are born again and that kingdom grows by God's proportions. It won't always be noted externally. It's not an external kingdom. It's an internal one where people's hearts are turned from stone to flesh, spiritually speaking. And this will spread. And he wants his people to spread with the message that he has given so clearly identified in chapter 53 before. We should know the content of the message that wins people to him. It's the message of redemption through his son. And this is becoming clearer and clearer as revelation unfolds, this being the first audience to start hearing what God's working out of the plan that he promised to be a blessing to the nations. Verse 3, not often used as a missionary verse, but I think it qualifies. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Remember that the offspring of the Israelites, properly understood, would be those who trust in the Redeemer. That's the definition we need to remember. So we understand as we come into the New Testament, all the descriptors of God's people apply to us through Christ. Expect God to expand his presence on the earth through his people. God will fulfill his covenant promises made through Abraham. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitations be spread out. Do not hold back. Dream big for what the gospel will do as it goes forth. 
Now, I want to be clear. We have to understand what this expansion looks like. It doesn't mean that the world around us will love the message. That's never, never promised to us. In fact, it's often said that persecution grows the church. That's technically true over time. But for the time of the people being persecuted, it won't feel like that. In fact, it won't even look like that. It won't even be actual. Sometimes it'll be subtracting. But as the people of God are given faithfulness by God and they stand up under whatever that persecution may be, what proves itself time and time again is it may be the next generation or the one after that, but there's strength drawn from God keeping his people, even if they subtract for a time, and then people draw upon that, just like you and I draw upon messages of people who died for their faith. That gives us extra strength now, and the church expands. But then sometimes persecution comes in, and God purifies the church, makes its witness stronger and clear, and he builds the church. He does this, and he's been doing it over the years. And sometimes we think, well, we must be losing uh, just because of our little old situation here. Uh, but there's 7 billion people on the planet. 320 million of them live in the United States. The world's bigger than us. And God's kingdom is far bigger than us, and it's better than us. And so we can be sure that he's doing his work of the gospel with all the nations, through all the nations. And even in a country like China that will say it's illegal, it can't stop the church. It cannot stop the gospel. Nothing can stop the gospel. And so as the gospel goes forward, people come to faith, and God grows his presence on the earth by having his people on the earth, wherever they are, and however he particularly calls them to manifest his name. This is the picture that we have starting to be painted, especially in these latter chapters of Isaiah. It's an interesting thing that happens. Even though in Isaiah's time they're struggling under the oppression of Babylon to come, he's still speaking with great optimism about what God will do for his namesake through the restoration and expansion of his people. Verse 4 says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. They had been living under shame and disgrace because of the sin they brought upon themselves. For you will forget the shame of your youth. This this era they're living in will be over. And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. They were like they were husbandless. They didn't have anything to uphold them. And in antiquity, that was very important, more so than today. But that will no longer be the case, they're saying. God is saying through the prophet, God's covenantal faithfulness would be the basis for their confidence going forward and for their ability to no longer fear. God says he'll do the work of redemption to pay for their sins, and he did it. God says he'll do the work of propitiation to appease God's wrath, and he provides it when he sends his son. God says he'll do the work of adoption to make them his children, and he does that too. He says he'll grow their numbers and expand his church. We have only to believe God's covenant promises, and that's the same today. God wants his people to have confidence in the future because God is moving. God is working, and he does so primarily through his people in all places. And when we do believe, when we do rest in that, we fear less. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, And the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. You know, speaking very specifically and even nationally now, there's a lot of talk about the importance of religious freedom. And it's important and we should be active in pursuit of that. And what do we mean? We mean the ability to worship freely, the ability to share the message of the gospel freely. 
We mean for churches, obviously, to uh, operate freely. We mean Christian institutions, all very important. But I do want to give you this encouragement. Religious freedom is not necessary for the church's success. God will make the church successful regardless. God will do his work. Expect God to uphold his people. Expect God to uphold his witness. Redemption leads to restoration and renewal. Chapter 53 leads to what is told to us in chapter 54 and 55, and for the rest of the book for that matter. In restoration and renewal for God's people, it means ultimately expansion and growth into the world with this message for as long as God wills until Jesus comes again. And ultimate growth is not limited by God's enemies oppressing his people. The reason we can be confident about this restoration that he promises, this work he's doing to build his church, it's found in the second half of our passage. It's the very character of God. Verses 5 down to verse 10, we see God as our covenant-keeping, commitment-keeping, promise-keeping, redeemer-restorer. Verse 5, lots of bold admonitions in the first few verses to sing, to expand, to fear not. Why? Verse 5, for your maker is your husband. You may may have felt like you have been widowed, but your maker is your husband. Not one of these false Babylonian gods. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. That's the timeless one, the eternal one. That's who has made you his bride. And the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. So he's your maker and he's your redeemer. He has made you, he knows you, he loves you, he keeps you, he's purchased you, he has redeemed you. So it's your maker and your redeemer. That's the one you're now identified with. Your identity now is bound up in the Holy One of Israel, the Ancient of Days. The God of the whole earth he is called. This is to be very clear and to put off the other gods that were proclaimed among the Egyptians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the Persians to come. No, no, they're not real gods. Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. What a beautiful picture. What a parallelism. See it in verse 5. Your maker is your husband in the first part of the verse. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. That's in one column. In the other column, the Lord of hosts is his name. The God of the whole earth he is called. For literature students, you would love this parallelism. It's so beautifully put. Your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts. The Holy One of Israel, your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. We're not widows, nor are we barren. We have God as our husband and our redeemer who will give fruit. Verse 6, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. This specific encouragement goes to a people who are in the midst of going into exile for almost a whole generation. And God reminds them that despite this period of time you are enduring, this is what I will call you out of. In what we in the church, Israel today, if you will, the expanded Israel, um, have realized and have seen. And we bask in this. In fact, much of the New Testament is steeped in our adoption, our belonging to God, our restoration because of what Christ has done. They're still looking forward to this happening. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. In verse 7 and 8, 
are meant to help the people in their time of difficulty, a time of difficulty they brought upon themselves because of disobedience. But it's real. Look at verse 7 and verse 8. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. So there's a temporary time period of discipline you will endure, he says to the people of Israel. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but... With everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. The time of God's discipline on his people was present for Isaiah and for Israel. And he's giving a great prophecy of restoration and renewal, which you and I, brothers and sisters, get to see as it's unfolded over these years since Christ's resurrection and ascension. You see how important chapter 53 is to this whole understanding? It gives the whole of the life of the Messiah and leaves with him essentially interceding for us now as we know played out completely in the New Testament, seated at the right hand, making the nations a footstool until he comes again. And we live in that time period. God is giving his message, though, immediately to a people who were caught in the cycle of unfaithfulness, and now he's calling them to trust in the Messiah to come the faithful servant unlike them, so that they would bear up under whatever they would need to deal with for these years to come before he works this restoration that you and I have been able to see. And you know, there was an immediate restoration that happened for ethnic Israel, nation of Israel. It's not nearly as glorious as what's happened since, but there was amazingly a transfer of power like happens where Babylon lost to Persia and Cyrus and Persia mandated for the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple and go back and take up their place in Jerusalem. And it was perfect because it was the place that incubated the nation again until Messiah came. And it was that backdrop that was allowed to be set up again uh, that Jesus came and demonstrated the only perfect Jew to ever live, the only perfect person, the only person to ever keep covenant perfectly and then thus have merited all of God's covenantal promises. And how do we become the covenant people of God? We must be in the covenant keeper, Christ himself. And so this is what is set up within the generation. But for the people of Isaiah, most of the people that were alive when they heard this would not see that. It would come in their children's lifetime. lifetime. Verse 7 and 8, you have this reference now in verse 9 to something they would have understood. Verse 9 says, this is like the days of Noah to me, As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. So this time of desertion that they were feeling, just like he would never send a flood again, he would not do this again to his people like this. This is for a purpose, a purging purpose. He was setting up what was to come next. And like the days of Noah to me, he says in verse 9, as I swore that the waters of Noah should go no more, should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and I will not rebuke you. They will be in a state of discipline, but God's anger will not be upon them. I like what Moitir says, the brevity of the alienation is contrasted with the greatness of reconciliation. This brief time, relatively speaking, of God's discipline will be contrasted with the greatness of the reconciliation he will bring when he brings forth his perfect servant. Verse 10 is really the apex of this section of chapter 54. And a beautiful, uh, universal verse for the people of God. You can see how 
as you read it, you need to know what part is contextual and then what parts are speaking of his full restoration, speaking to us more personally. Verse 10 is one of those passages. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Why? Because of what he commits in chapter 53, his loving kindness will never end for his people. And the reference to mountains and hills, maybe if you've been reading your Bibles, you would know lots of references to mountains and hills. And the reason is this. You could be alive living near a mountain. You would live and die. You're 70, 80 years if you're fortunate, and then you die, and then that mountain range, your grandchildren would still see, and it would look the same to them as it looked to you. And then their great, 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 great grandchildren would look at that mountain range, and it would look the same to them as it did to you. Because in our eyes, at least humanly speaking, they don't change. Uh, they, they seem almost eternal to us. They seem ageless or timeless. That's how the ancients looked at mountains and hills. They, didn't, they saw them as objects that just could not be defeated. I mean, you could not, you had to go around them. If you had a roadway, you couldn't go through them. You had to go around them. They were just, they were just big, they were powerful, they represented uh, an, an, an ancient of days is what you would think of when you see the mountains and the hills. In verse 10 says, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart. The mountains and the hills aren't going to be removed. You can't imagine it. But if they were, I still would love you. I still would bestow upon you my grace. In fact, steadfast love, maybe if, if you have the NIV or another version, you'll see the word hesed here. The Hebrew word hesed is commonly and rightly translated as grace. Unmerited favor shown to those who really deserve God's wrath. My steadfast love. It's, it's not just a normal love, it's God's grace. You know, when you think of this metaphor of the hills and the mountains, it was just about a month ago, I think now, where the military dropped this massive bomb in Afghanistan. The GBU-43 known as Moab, which I find interesting from a biblical perspective called Moab, but it's massive ordnance air blast bomb. It's the biggest non-nuclear bomb we have, biggest ever dropped in history. Whatever you think of that, the thing is 22,000 pounds, and it was dropped in the foothills near a mountain. And they showed some aerials of it happening, and it definitely looked like a massive impact. But afterwards, if you look at it, it still kind of looks like Afghanistan after. The mountain didn't move with the biggest thing we got. And in antiquity, they couldn't even imagine something like that. So he is saying, there is no way that my grace will fail you. There's no way. That, that is the promise of God. And it's not just an empty, sentimental promise because he's big and strong. It's because he has cemented it with the finished work of his Messiah. And so that work is finished. That means his grace can never be, ever be withdrawn. All those united to his son are sure, sure in him. And this is what he wants to anchor this message once again in the realities of what has been provided. The mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart you. In the last part of verse 10, notice it. And my covenant of peace, covenant meaning a commitment or an agreement, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. God's promise of peace to his people cannot be upended. There are multiple synonymous terms to describe God's commitment to redeem and restore. God's covenant of redemption, we call it. God's covenant of grace, we call it. 
God's covenant of peace. And you should immediately be drawn to 50, chapter 53 again, where upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With who? With God. And with his wounds we are healed. Now, verse 10, my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. You could see why this would be uh, so encouraging to the people of God dealing with what they're dealing with. It should be to you today, especially because we have more revelation. We've seen more of what God has done. We've seen him keep promise after promise after promise. So now we stand in this uh, place of confidence based on God's character. That's how we know he'll do the work of restoration and renewal and expansion in the life of his people. Now, I want to close by making something clear when I use the word restoration, because it can be used in a couple ways. We think of us as sinners who are sinners, lost in sin, and God restores us by making us born again, and we think differently, and we walk in newness of life. Absolutely, that's part of it. But there's a restoration in general that God is about that I want you to recognize in redemption. He is restoring mankind to a rightful place where we can give praise to his name. That's his ultimate, ultimate working in redemption. That is, he is, in the second Adam, restoring what was lost in the first Adam so that for eternity there will be a restored humanity who walks in fellowship with him. That's the big picture of what God's doing. Now, I know we live short lives here, and we're consumed with the details of them, and that's understandable, and your personal restoration matters. I mean, that's why we encourage one another. That's why we, we partake of the means of grace, to grow in grace and see the newness of life. But don't lose sight of the big picture. I think it helps to know that he's doing a bigger work. And the reason why we want to be so about the message of the gospel is so that the restoration happens, so that people are redeemed and restored and gets closer and closer as God wills it and God allows it uh, to being the way it should have been uh, had the fall never occurred. But even better, actually, because of the second Adam being superior to the first. So much more can be said. But it's a big picture. It should compel us to want to see the gospel go, go forward. Now, we won't realize it on, in our life before Christ comes back, but this is what he wants us to be about, to bring about this restoration. Think about um, what we know happened when the fall occurred, and you'll know why the word restoration is so important. I think our confession does a great job of kind of spelling out the bleak situation. Listen to what it says. By this sin, talking about Adam and Eve's initial sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, Adam and Eve, the guilt of the sin was imputed or credited. And the same death and sin that corrupted and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, that being us, descending from them by ordinary generation. Every person is conceived in iniquity. Nobody escapes it. Nobody's born good. No matter what Hollywood tells you or what people say in general that people are good, no, they're not. We're not. You all know you did not teach your toddler how to lie. They figure it out. You didn't teach them how to get angry or mad at you or rebel against you. That just It's who we are apart from God's redemption. From this original corruption, the confession goes on to describe the Bible's teaching, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. It gets worse, so hold on. Question 19 of the Shorter Catechism, what's the misery of the estate wherein to man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, or under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. I mean, 
you can't describe in words how bad it really is and why we need this redemption that God purchases for us through Christ, described in Isaiah 53 and fulfilled in the New Testament. We need that redemption because of how bad it is. But the work he's doing doesn't stop at redemption. It moves to restoration. That's what his... That's what he's doing in your life. You know that painful feeling you have now that you're a believer? You think to yourself, you know, it was easier when I wasn't a believer because I didn't know about all this. And so there's this, this pain that happens as God conforms you more and more to his image and he reveals more of the sin in your life. I don't know how it is for you, but the older I get, the more sinful I feel like I am because he keeps opening other doors and I realize he's doing a work of restoration that won't see its fulfillment till Christ returns, till glory. But he's doing that work and that's his, that's his end goal. That's what he's working towards. Because we'll have restored to us the things that we lost in the fall. Our understanding about the purpose of life is restored in Christ. We know what the chief end of man is. Our understanding about what's right and wrong is restored. Misery, result of the fall, it's, it's, it, has a, it has a balm of healing in Christ temporarily, but completely in glory. The goal of redemption is restoration for the glory of God. Ultimately, so that everyone all over Every, every possible thing that could give praise to God would. No more separation with God immediately upon trust in Christ. No more state of spiritual deadness upon trust in Christ. Being made alive to trust in him. There is a temporary physical death, but it culminates with resurrection for those who are in Christ. We gain an understanding about our purpose. We gain an understanding about God's righteousness. We gain healing for the misery of sin that culminated. That will culminate in glorification. Sinful man redeemed to be restored to his place in the universe. Our goal then as believers is not simply to experience personal salvation or redemption. Our goal as believers is to see God glorified through that redemption of sinners, ourselves included, and their restoration so they too can join in the manifold song of praise to God. King David, who wouldn't have fully understood all of this, by the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote a few psalms that capture what should really compel us as a church to want to see our tent enlarged. Psalm 96, verse 3, David writes, Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. That's the end goal. Psalm 97, verse 1, The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. I love what John Piper says. Missions, or outreach as we call it, it's not the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. We have to be redeemed to worship him, but we want to see everyone redeemed and restored to that right worshipful relationship with God. Worship is the ultimate end goal. This is why David wrote in Psalm 67, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. I love the hymn and had I been planning better, we would have sang this uh, to end the, ser- the, the sermon, but I do have a, another good one that will help guide us. But Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns is one of those great hymns that's often used as a missionary hymn, and I think it's right. It was written in 1769 by Benjamin Bedham. Listen to the words, and he captures really this ultimate goal of worship. Shout for the Blessed Jesus Reigns, through distant lands his triumphs spread. And sinners, freed from endless pains, own him their savior and their head. He calls his chosen from afar. They all at Zion's gates arrive. Those who were dead in sin before by sovereign grace are made alive. 
Gentiles and Jews his laws obey. Nations remote their offspring bring. And unconstrained their homage pay to their exalted God and King. In the last verse, one we use sometimes to close the service. Oh, may his holy church increase. His word and spirit still prevail. While angels celebrate his praise and saints his growing glories hail. Verse 3, once again, what a great missionary passage. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. So chapter 53, the redemption of God's people through the righteous servant. Chapters 54 and 55 that we've now just begun, the promise of restoration and renewal of God's people by God's personal shepherding, faithful care. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your headship over your church, for your redemption, for the restoration, and for your renewal that you are working. Will you please continue to lead us, guide us, shepherd us, Lord Jesus. Pray this in your name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 599. We'll stand and sing verse 1 and verse 2 of Savior, like a shepherd, lead us.